0: hello and welcome to jeff's midweek bible study a verse-by-verse teaching through the bible with pastor jeff Lassane. we hope this podcast encourages your faith and now here's pastor jeff Well, thanks for tuning into the podcast and welcome to 2024, my goodness, another day closer to the Lord's return. So uh, grateful that you've joined us for this podcast. And uh, for those of you that don't know, I was adopted at the age of just four months. For decades then, I wondered what my ancestry might be since my adopting parents didn't have that information. So a few years ago, I finally ordered a DNA Ancestry kit. When they eventually emailed me my results, I have to admit that it felt very surreal. And after 60 plus years, I was finally gonna learn something about my background. Quite honestly, I fully expected the report to reveal that I was a, uh, shall we say, a Heinz 57 mix of many backgrounds. So my first surprise was that nearly 60% of my ancestry background comes from just two groups and the other 40% is just a few other groups. So I wasn't the Heinz 57 that I thought I was. Now my close friends know that my two favorite places to visit and spend time in are Israel and England. So the second surprise is that I'm 31% British. No wonder I like fish and chips. But then came the third surprise, which really was the biggest one for me. I'm 26% Jewish. I never saw that one coming. But once again, it was a pleasant discovery. And as I just mentioned, long before I knew what my background was, my favorite places to visit were Israel and England. So I guess we can say that it was always in my DNA. And now finding out that I'm more than one-quarter Jewish, along with doing weddings and funerals as a pastor, I also do bar mitzvahs. Just kidding. It's truly a blessing to have some Jewish blood running through my veins, but when I tell people that I support Israel wholeheartedly, it's much less about my DNA and much more about being a born-again believer. Hey, if we belong to the family of God, then we have a special, God-given love for his chosen people. It does not mean that they're perfect or without fault, but they are God's people. At the same time, we recognize that Israel is the focal point of all end times prophecy, and Israel is the land of destiny. God in his dealings with Israel is the constant theme that runs throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus was born as a Jew in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, ministered in Galilee, and was crucified in Jerusalem. Afterwards, he ascended up to heaven from the Mount of Olives, where Zechariah tells us he will return and set his feet at his second coming. The final world battle of Armageddon will also take place on the soil of Israel. Israel and Jerusalem, then, are the focal point of human history and Bible prophecy. As Christians, we must not forget or lose sight of the fact that we have a Jewish Savior, that our scriptures came to us through the Jews, our faith is built upon the foundation of Jewish apostles, the church was born on a Jewish holiday and was made up of Jewish believers, and the gospel is to the Jew first. As Gentiles, we're the wild branches that have been grafted into the main vine of God's people, as Paul explains in Romans Romans 11. It doesn't mean that God loves Gentiles any less, and spiritually speaking, in the family of God, there is really no longer the distinction of Jew or Gentile. All believers are the children of God. But prophetically speaking, God still has many purposes and promises to fulfill through Israel. The rebirth of Israel as a nation really started the end times countdown, Ironically, there are a little over 16 million Jews living in the world today, which is such a small percentage of the total global population of 8 billion people. That means that the Jewish people make up 0.2% of the population. Not 2%, 0.2%, like one-fifth of 1%. And yet, nearly all the key events of end times prophecy hinges upon Israel and her people. And so as Israel goes, so goes the world. By the way, of the 16 million Jews in the world today, uh, about 45% of them live in Israel and about the same amount live in the U.S. So it's no surprise that their enemies not only hate Israel, they hate America. And whether Israel realizes it or not, their best friends are all of the born-again, Bible-believing Christians around the world, including many of those that are in America. Well, as we return to our series in Revelation, we come to the 12th chapter, and in just a few moments, we're coming to what I'm calling a history of evil. We'll be looking at the record of Satan, past and future. But first, let's return to the end of chapter 11, and we left off there. Let's uh, pick up our reading in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The second half of the tribulation is about to commence at this point. Finally, now, after the interlude that followed the first six trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet sounds. The actual result of the seventh trumpet will be the coming seven bowl judgments. That's what be in chapter sixteen. We also read here that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our, of our Lord. So in other words, while Satan is currently the God of this world, in the near future, Jesus will reclaim and rule over the kingdoms of this world. Hallelujah. We look forward to that day. In verse 16, the 24 elders, which represent uh, believers in heaven, break out in praise upon this announcement. Then in verse 19, something remarkable takes place. Notice it says, "...the temple of God will be opened in heaven." And the Ark of the Covenant will be seen in his temple. And along with that were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. As you probably recall, the earthly Ark of the Covenant was kept inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. No one ever saw it except for the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, where he would sprinkle blood on the Ark to atone for the sins of the people, or at least to cover uh, and bring forgiveness for the sins of the people. But here now in heaven, God opens up the Holy of Holies and reveals the true Ark of the Covenant in heaven to the saints that are in heaven. If you were with us for our last message, you might recall that the 11th chapter here in Revelation opened up with the temple on earth, and now this same chapter closes with the temple in heaven. The temple and the Ark represent God's presence to his people. Well, coming to chapter 12 now, some significant things began to take place. For one, we're now beginning the second half of Revelation, 11 chapters completed, and we have 11 chapters to go. Secondly, we're beginning the second half of the Tribulation period, prompted by the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And thirdly, chapters 12 and 13 will begin to introduce us to a very unholy trinity consisting of Satan the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Well, let's pick up our reading now in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 12. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or crowns on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. Revelation chapter 12 has been called the most symbolic chapter in this book, but even so, it's not as daunting as it might seem. As I've tried to encourage you from the very beginning of these studies in Revelation, the literal straightforward interpretation is the proper interpretation just as it is with the other 65 books of the Bible. And then when it comes to the symbolism here in this book or any other book for that matter, we also interpret those symbolisms by using the Bible itself. Remember the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So chapter 12 opens up with two signs in heaven and these are the first and second of seven signs recorded in Revelation. First off, we read, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now if we had no other similar references in the Bible, it would strictly be a guessing game at this point as to what John was trying to describe here. But thankfully, we have a biblical precedent for this description, which I'll share with you in just a moment. Now, even though we have a biblical precedent, which is the direction that we should go, it hasn't stopped people from coming up with, um, well, to put it kindly, peculiar ideas as to what this passage means. For example, Catholic scholars believe that the woman here is a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus. One of the many problems with that idea is that Mary's never described as being clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, or a garland of 12 stars on her head. And yet another problem is how we read in verse 6 that this woman will flee into the wilderness for three and a half years. That was not the case with Mary, and so that is just not the correct understanding. Some Protestant scholars have stated that the woman is a reference to the church, and therefore the woman is a reference to the bride of Christ. The problem with that interpretation is that, listen, it would be saying that the church gave birth to Jesus when, in fact, Jesus gave birth to the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the church is built upon the death and resurrection of Christ. And so, once again, that is not the correct understanding. The other primary interpretation for the identity of this woman is that she represents Israel. That is not only the correct interpretation, which fits the description here, but we also have biblical precedent for that symbolism. You'll recall in Genesis 37 that Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, had a dream. In that dream, Joseph saw the sun, the moon, and eleven stars bowing down before him. Uh, Now needless to say, at seventeen years of age, Joseph didn't necessarily need to share that dream with his family and his family clearly understood that the dream represented them. It represented his two parents and his eleven brothers all bowing down before him. This upset his father Jacob, and worse yet, it angered his eleven brothers. So, when the opportunity came, those brothers sold Joseph into slavery, and he wound up in Egypt. By God's sovereign providence, and after many trials, Joseph ended up as the second most powerful ruler in Egypt, uh, second only to Pharaoh himself. And then a severe famine struck, and the only place where people could buy grain for food was in Egypt, thanks to Joseph's planning and preparations, which came from God. Eventually, Joseph's family ended up coming down to Egypt and bowing before him, just as the dream foretold. God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes or the 12 families of Israel. From the Jewish nation of Israel then came the Messiah and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's clear that the woman here is Israel. The fact that she, Israel, cries out in great pain symbolizes the fact that the Jewish people were under uh, intense oppression at the time of Christ's birth, courtesy of the Romans. We read about that in the Gospels. It also symbolizes Israel's longing for her Messiah to come and establish his kingdom as prophesied in the Old Testament. As we get to verse 3, the second great sign appears, and it is a fiery red dragon. Now, there's no guesswork here as to the identity of this dragon, because verse 9 clearly states that this is Satan. The red refers to violence and bloodshed, just as the red horse rider did back in chapter 6. And we'll talk more about this in the chapters to come, but the seven heads represent seven world empires of world history. Six are in the past, and then we have the future world empire of the Antichrist. They are seven heads on the dragon because Satan has always been the influence behind each of the world empires ever since the fall of mankind back in the garden. Those seven world empires, which Daniel also describes and speaks about in some detail in his Old Testament book, they would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the future empire in the Tribulation, which will be a or a revived version of the Roman Empire. In fact, it's worth noting that the first time Jesus came into the world, Rome was the world empire. And when Jesus comes back at his second coming, it will be the revived Roman Empire of Antichrist. In the coming chapters, we'll also talk more about the Ten Horns. They represent a European confederacy or a coalition of ten nations that will unite behind the leadership of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. Uh, In the beginning, they'll actually kind of co-rule with the Antichrist and then Eventually, those ten kings will give all of their authority over to the Antichrist as Satan dominates the world in the second half of the tribulation. By the way, when we read here that these two great signs, Israel and Satan, appeared in heaven, it simply means that this is heaven's view of what is taking place on the earth at that time in the tribulation. Looking now at verse 4, Having mentioned the fiery red dragon, who is Satan, John describes a brief historical overview of the devil, or as we've titled this message, a history of evil. John writes that one-third of the stars of heaven fell to the earth with Satan. A few verses later, in verses 7 and 9, those stars are identified as Satan's angels, or what we refer to today as demons. So let's briefly put all this into historical context. We don't know exactly when God created the angels, but Job 38 indicates that the angels were already created and present when God was forming the foundations of the world. So it appears that the angels were the first part of his creation. Now, originally God created millions of holy angels but the actual number is never given to us except to say that it's myriads of angels, which that word means thousands times thousands times ten thousands of thousands. But all of those angels were created wholly by God, including Lucifer, who again today is known as Satan or the devil. So then comes a common question, why did God create the devil since the devil is evil? Well, once again, God created everything, the angels and all of creation, as good. God didn't create evil. He created the angels as holy, and he created mankind as perfect, but God also gave the angels and mankind free will. According to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, Lucifer rebelled against God in heaven. He wanted to be worshipped like God, and he wanted to rule like God. Therefore, Lucifer was booted out of God's presence. Lucifer is obviously a mighty angel. He's described as the beautiful cherub who was part of the worship of God at his throne. Using the image of a dragon, John describes his tail drawing a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. So whatever the massive number of angels is, we know that one-third are now fallen angels or demons, while the other two-thirds of the angels remain holy and in submission and service to God. Now think about this for a moment. Consider this. Satan was powerful enough and deceitful enough and cunning enough to convince one-third of the holy angels in heaven to follow him in his rebellion against God. I mean, these are the very same angels who experienced the holy presence of God at his throne in heaven. So listen, if the devil is powerful enough and clever enough to deceive a third of the angels, imagine the power and influence he has over billions of people who don't believe in God and who don't give thought to eternal matters. Not only did the devil lead angels in rebellion against God, he orchestrated the downfall of humanity by deceiving Eve and Adam. So we shouldn't be surprised when Satan deceives the unsaved world. In fact, his greatest trick is unfolding before our very eyes because the devil is no longer hiding, he's right out there in plain sight and the world still doesn't see him. Continuing in verse 4, we fast forward to the birth of Christ. Satan, as the dragon, stood before the woman, who is Israel, ready to devour and destroy the Christ child. We read about that in Matthew and how Satan used King Herod in an attempt to destroy the Christ child there in Bethlehem. In verse 5, Israel gave birth to that child, and in the not-too-distant future, Jesus will rule the nations, and that refers to his millennial kingdom. Then we have reference to how Jesus ascended back up into heaven following his resurrection and back to his throne, symbolizing the completion of his work of redemption. In verse 6, John's vision fast-forwards once again to the midpoint of the tribulation. We read here that the woman, again, that's Israel, will flee into the wilderness to a place prepared by God where the Lord will protect and provide for her 1,260 days or three and a half years, and that's a reference to the second half of the tribulation. Israel will be fleeing into the wilderness because Satan, through the Antichrist, will attempt to hunt down and eradicate all the Jewish people. Jesus spoke of this uh, forecoming persecution of Israel during the tribulation period. He talked about this in Matthew 24:16, when he said, "Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains." Now, there's been much speculation as to where the Jews will flee during the second half of the tribulation. What mountains? Well, several Bible scholars believe that the hiding place, the mountains that the Jews will flee to, will be the place called Petra. Of course, as Bible students, our first response to that should be, is there any biblical evidence or support for that theory? Well, the answer is yes. According to Daniel 11.41, the few areas that the Antichrist's hand will not reach, I mean, he's going to conquer the world, but his hand will not reach the areas of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Today, that area is the country of Jordan, which is the neighboring country of Israel to their east, and it's not very far from Jerusalem. There in southern Jordan is the rock city of Petra. In Old Testament times, Petra was called Selah, which means rock. Now, I've been there a couple of times, and it is really an amazing place. In fact, if you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, then you'll recall towards the end of the film you can see the entrance going into Petra as well as that beautiful rock tomb carve out called the Treasury. The only entrance uh, into Petra is through the narrow high rock, so it gives it sort of a natural protection. And once inside that area, it goes back about a mile with many hills, caves and cliffs. I've walked a good deal of that area, and it's quite amazing to see. Well, let's resume our reading together as we go now to verse 7, and we read that war will break out in heaven. Michael and his angels will fight the dragon, and the dragon and his angels will fight, uh, but they will not prevail, nor will be a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. Well, Michael the archangel and Satan the fallen angel have some definite history with one another. Of course, they were fellow angels together in heaven around the throne of God until Satan defected and took a third of the angels with him. And then we read in Jude that Michael and Satan fought over the the body of Moses after Moses had died. Now, we're not given any specifics about that, though we would really like to know more. But it seems that the devil apparently wanted to use the body of Moses in some evil way, perhaps causing it to be an idol, or we just don't know. But it led to he and Michael fighting over the body of Moses. Well, here now, this will be the cosmic conflict between Michael and the holy angels fighting against Satan and his demons. You know, sometimes people mistakenly think that Jesus and the devil are equals. (laughs) Ridiculous. Uh, Talk to the Mormons about that. And that they fight against each other, but nothing could be further from the truth. The devil is not Christ's equal, and in fact, Jesus created him and everything else. Therefore, the more suitable matchup would be Michael and Satan. Even so, Michael will prevail, causing the devil and his demon army to be expelled from heaven once and for all. Now, Satan and the demons were cast out of heaven thousands of years ago in the sense of no longer dwelling in heaven. However, the devil still continues to have access into heaven, and as we read, he goes there to accuse the believers before God. We have a picture of this in the book of Job, where we read about the devil going up to heaven from the earth, and God questions Satan where he's been and what he's been doing, which reminds us that though God gives the devil a lot of free reign to use his free will, God still has ongoing control over him. Here now we read that the time is coming when God will no longer allow Satan to enter heaven with his accusations against God's people. God will give the order to Michael the archangel, telling him it's time to take out the trash. And I'm guessing that Michael will have been looking forward to this moment for quite a long time. In verse 9, we find descriptions of Satan as the great dragon and the serpent of old. The use of the word dragon to describe Satan is only found in Revelation. Uh, It's used 13 times, 8 of those right here in chapter 12. But the serpent of old, well, we know that one. That takes us back to the Garden of Eden where Satan deceived Eve. So in Genesis, he's the serpent, and in Revelation, he's the dragon. And his continuous activity is to deceive the world. After Satan is defeated by Michael and then kicked out of heaven, it brings a collective shout of joy from the saints in heaven who declare salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ has come. In other words, it won't be long until God's kingdom is established on earth. It also means it won't be long until Satan is locked up for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. In verse 11, a great verse, we have the believer's defense against the accusations of Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. The saints in heaven and the saints on earth overcome the devil in the same way, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by their willingness to die for their faith. We overcome the devil first and foremost by the blood of Jesus, his salvation as given to us as a gift. The devil still accuses us, but the blood of Christ cleanses us. As it's been well said, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. We also overcome him by the testimony of our salvation. In other words, what God has done and the testimony of how we entered into our relationship with Christ. And Finally, we overcome him by loving God more than our own lives, as evidenced by all the martyrs there in heaven. All of this brings great joy in heaven and great anger on the earth. So let's go ahead and go to verse 13 and to the remainder of this chapter, where we read that the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, and as a result, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth." And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. After Satan and his demons are permanently expelled from heaven, he will recognize that his time is very short before Christ's return. Therefore, he will initiate an all-out campaign to wipe out the Jewish people from the face of the earth. He'll use the Antichrist to make Hitler look like an amateur. If we think anti-Semitism is bad today, and it definitely is, it will pale in comparison to the second half of the tribulation period. The Greek word for persecute in verse 13 literally means to pursue, to chase, and to hunt down. Now let me bring in a reference from Zechariah 13 where the Old Testament prophet Uh, spoke actually God spoke through him and it says it shall come to pass in all the land says the Lord that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die but one-third shall be left in it I will bring one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say these are my people and each one of them will say that the Lord is my God What Zechariah is describing and what is incredibly sad to read is that two out of every three Jews will be killed in the second half of the tribulation. Going back to the current population of Jewish people in the world today, a little over 16 million Jews in the world, this means that well over 10 million Jews will be killed. In verse 14, we read of God protecting Israel on the wings of a great eagle. Some Christians have speculated that this reference to the eagle is referring to the United States because our national symbol is the eagle, and after all, we might be the ones that rescue Israel in her hour of need because we've always tried to be supportive of Israel in the past. Uh, That's not only wishful thinking, it also ignores biblical precedent. This reference to the wings of an eagle is used a few times in the Old Testament with regard to Israel, and in every case, it's referring to God's own personal care and protection. It also tells us that Israel will be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That refers to the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And by the way, the word for nourished is the same word in the Greek that is translated as feed back in verse 6. This reminds us of the first time Israel was in the wilderness in Exodus and God supernaturally fed his people with manna from heaven. Now as Israel returns to the wilderness, God will once again supernaturally feed his people. And you know, for all we know, God may rain down manna from heaven once again. In verses 15 to 16, Satan will intensify his attack Uh, against Israel by spewing out some sort of a flood and whether this is actually a flood of water or a reference to military troops or something else we don't know. We read in verse 16 that the earth will open up its mouth and swallow up this flood. If this is speaking of a literal water flood then God will cause the water to go down into the ground before it reaches his people If it's referring to military troops, then perhaps it will be a great earthquake that swallows up the attacking army. As Satan's attacks are thwarted by God, he becomes even more enraged, and we're told in verse 17, he makes war with the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so he will not only uh, try to eradicate all of the Jews, but will also uh, pursue and persecute the Gentiles who have come to saving faith as well. In fact, anyone who trusts Christ as their Savior at that point will become the target of Satan's hatred and persecution. In closing, the devil definitely has a history of evil, and while that will continue until the second coming of Jesus, I've got good news for you. The devil is not found in the last two chapters of the Bible. His day of eternal doom is coming, and that means goodbye to the devil forever. In Jesus' name, amen.